You're listening to Beyond Busy, the show where we ask the bigger questions about work. My name is Graham Alcott. I'm your host for the show, and this is our very special episode 100. This is part two of episode 100. We're going to be looking at the topic of work-life balance. On the podcast, we talk a lot about the dynamics and the interplay between the topics of productivity, work-life balance, and then how different people define happiness and success. And I'm always really interested in the, the, the ways that those things influence each other. So you can find that people have really strong, high levels of productivity, and then you work out that, oh, hang on, they're working 23 hours a day. This is not sustainable. Or their personal life is a complete mess and they could actually do with probably focusing a bit less on work. I'm, pro I'm sure I've been uh, in that camp at different times in my life uh, myself as well. And then you find that there are people who really have it nailed around work-life balance, but what that means is they're denying the world of some of the things that they could be doing or perhaps not living up to their full potential. And then I think just how people define happy, happiness and success is a really interesting thing. You know, are people truly happy uh, when all they do is work? Are they truly happy when uh, all they do is focus on uh, the rest of their life? And I just think finding the balance and I, I think the tensions between those things are really, really interesting. So that was really why Beyond Busy has always focused on those themes. And I think the thing that unites all the people that we're going to look at today in this uh, work-life balance part two of Beyond Busy 100 is a sense of the work that they do being all-consuming. So where you don't necessarily have those nine to five, Monday to Friday kind of boundaries around your work. So we're going to talk to a former model and TV chef. We're going to talk to a charity chief exec, a Radio 1 DJ, a speaker, a comedian, a singer, an entrepreneur, someone who was high up in banking in the middle of a war zone and a leader in a racially charged uh, part of America. And I think there's something really interesting about this idea of work being all-consuming. And in that circumstance, what drives people to to continue working in, you know, environments that can be psychologically damaging, physically dangerous, and just really challenging. You know, having your, your stuff together... Uh, when those are the circumstances that you're working in, I think is really tricky. So we've got some really interesting guests to showcase. These are really just my favourite bits um, on this topic of work-life balance from the last 99 episodes of Beyond Busy. And as I said in part one, I think it's such a privilege to be able to do this and to, to be able to reach out to people whose work you admire and say, hey, can I just come and talk to you? You know, and people have been really generous with their time uh, I try and do as many of these in the pre-COVID pre times I was doing pretty much all of them face-to-face -face rather than doing them you know, down the line on the internet. So most of the ones here, you'll hear background noise, you'll recognise that we're in locations with a person rather than just on the internet with a person. And I think that's always really interesting too, right? So to go where people work or to arrange uh, a meetup in a cafe nearby to where people work and stuff. And, you know, people have been so generous with their time when I've done this so um, that's just been a real privilege and it's just really uh, a pleasure to be able to share some of these moments with you. So let's get into our first one so we're going to be talking to Lorraine Pascal. So Lorraine has a really interesting background she was she's a former model and she was actually the first 
black British model to appear on the cover of American L. She was a little fun fact. She was actually also in Robbie Williams's Millennium video as one of the Bond girls. I didn't know that until I just checked it out on uh, Wikipedia recording this. Um, she is also the UK government's fostering and adoption ambassador. She grew up in a, a range of different foster homes. She's probably best known as being a TV chef and sold close to a million books um, in the UK alone with TV shows in 70 countries worldwide. So just a really interesting background, really interesting career. Someone who feels very driven in the work that she does. And we sat down in Battersea Art Centre. So there's a bit of noise in the background here. This was close by to where Lorraine was working. And I think we chose Battersea Art Centre because I think I had to get home afterwards or something. And like... The train line to Brighton is basically really, really convenient from Battersea Art Centre. And Battersea Art Centre is one of those lovely venues where you can just go in and just find a little cosy corner and just kind of, you know, claim it as your own for a couple of hours and no one really says anything, you know. So that was really, I think, why we chose uh, Battersea Art Centre. Um, but we start with talking to Lorraine about boundaries and then we're also going to talk about her own uh, quest for acceptance and work-life balance so let's get into our first conversation with Lorraine Pascal and we start off talking about rest so in terms of that whole uh, so in terms of the drawing the boundaries in terms of the rhythm of work so you'll work through the weekend or you'll take some downtime whatever yeah. uh, how do you feel about the, the other kind of boundary which is the boundary of connectivity and the idea that you could be always on or you might have people always kind of making demands on you and, and things like that like do you find it difficult to to switch off when you do need to switch off or how, well how I does, don't have my, e- my email window you know my email app thing on my phone it's not on my first page okay so it's on the second page otherwise I get stressed so hmm. that is one one way that I don't switch on I mean I'm on myself my mobile all the time yeah I'm just on it all the time and I, I, lo- I love it so I did a thing recently we at Think Productive we had a big away day and we brought in uh, some people called they're called Shine Offline and so their whole thing is how do we develop our relationship with the mobile phone and how do we make sure that's a healthy relationship and that we're not addicted to it and obviously you know the people who design Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all these things their job is to make it as sticky as possible and to keep you on there as long as possible so you know these guys are basically saying how can we how can we counteract that how can we think about that stuff in different ways and it really made me think that I was probably spending too much time on my phone I probably I've since adopted a few little rules to change that so now I now charge my phone downstairs in the kitchen and then I have a, an actual real alarm clock like there's old school alarm clocks um, so I set that every night and it me and it's really made a difference to me in that that last half hour or hour before I go to bed you know I'm maybe reading a book or I'm just sitting in my bedroom right and just actually not being engaged with you know news on Twitter and reading an article in the Guardian and looking at this and looking at that and it's really helped me to kind of I guess you know have that downtime or or recharge kind of time do you feel like do you ever feel kind of frazzled with your phone do you feel like you're on it too much how do you feel I about know that? I'm on it well on, on it too much I suppose according to whom <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and um, I don't let it control me 
And I think since I changed the emails, that's what made all the difference. Because otherwise, every time mm. I picked it up, the email and the email and email stressed me out. So now I yeah. just on my apps. But I really enjoy it. So I think often when you change, it's the quest for acceptance, isn't it? It's the quest to be taken seriously doing the new thing that you've just learned how to do as opposed to the thing that you're doing previously. So if people are going through that and they perhaps want to you know, break into a first career or they want to break into a second or third or they're stuck in one thing and they want to do something different, what's the thing that you've learnt through your journey that you think could really help them? Don't look for acceptance. Um, listen to your gut you know what you want to do and make it happen and just see how you can be valuable see how what you how can, you can be valuable to other people mm. bring value to people so and, and forget acceptance because family and friends they often say things that aren't that helpful sometimes I say lots of helpful things but often mm. people hold you back by some of the things they say or put doubts into your mind but our gut is so powerful and strong our intuition was all we had at one point. So I think it's about trusting it. You have to trust it and go for it. But make sure that you are bringing some kind of value, something yeah. that people can buy, something that's scalable. And that could also just as easily be bringing that value to the boss of the company and the industry that you want to be in as well, right? It doesn't have yeah, to be you selling exactly. it on your own, but it bringing value, is it? Exactly. So... What else could you do above you? I think it's about well, if you really want to be do something different. It's about how much value can I bring? You've got to work harder than other people. You've got to be looking, doing more research than other people, working longer hours than other people. If you want to bring more, mm. so it's just about giving it that extra. It's giving extra. You've got to give extra. Sounds yeah. like the, the Halifax man. Oh yeah, where's he? I haven't seen him for a while. Is Halifax yeah, still around still? I think yeah, Halifax is still. I don't think. Don't the, see around I don't here. think he's still around. The, is he uh, not? The guy. But yeah, that. But uh, I feel like I just devalued what you said. That was a really good thing that you said, and then I was. Oh, just I like, go for it. That's no, fine. <laughs> you can devalue it. But that sense of yeah, like uh, I think that's one of the things that I've I've always found it surprising that some people don't think of this question when you're you know, going for a job or you're trying to train up in a new area or whatever. But that question of sitting down with the person who you want to emulate or you, or the industry that you want to be in or whatever and saying, how can I bring you value right now? And it, it does feel like one of those things that people often overlook because they kind of think, how do I get the education or how do I, you know, maybe it's, you know, they start to have self-defeating thoughts about how do they achieve stuff. But actually just connecting one-on-one -on -one with the person who's in that place and saying, how how can I help right now? How can I bring you value? Really yeah. Important. Yeah. Yeah. Lorraine Pascal there, recorded back in 2017. And it feels like since then, she's also adopted another of her many strings to her bow, which is she's become a really prominent voice on Instagram, and particularly around issues to do with mental health, mindfulness, and just a whole bunch of topics that are really helpful for people. So if you don't follow Lorraine on Instagram, then go and check out her stuff. And we're going to come back to that whole theme of Instagram and, and mental health a bit later on in the podcast as well. But our next conversation is Shay Abakin. Shay is the chief executive of the charity Centerpoint. It's a charity I know really well because I spent a decade basically being on the board of Centerpoint up until a few years ago. 
it's a, a subject matter very very close to my heart and Shay is he's super inspiring and he's also one of the leading spokespeople on homelessness and in particular youth homelessness and again it's one of those jobs that becomes all-encompassing I know for a fact that Shay works very long hours um, you know puts his heart and soul into the work that he does and obviously is just doing work that makes makes a huge difference for young people and I remember my own experiences from being on the board of Centerpoint and talking to some of the young people who come from a whole range of really difficult circumstances and turn their life around and end up with a home and a job at the end of it. So Shay's just hugely inspiring. And I started by asking here, Shay, his thoughts about work-life balance. How you how you interact with work life balance? Like when I say work life balance to you, what what does that conjure up for you? What, what I think for me that it? just means that um, you have to find a um, you have to find a balance in all areas of your life, uh, and um, and that's different from person to person. Mm. But you have to find the the one that works for you and uh, makes you happy. Yeah. Uh, so I I am a Christian. I have a faith. Uh, I couldn't uh, be happy if I wasn't able to spend time on things that feed my faith. Mm. Right, so uh, so part of the things that I do is give time to that, and for me, that's part of how I find balance. Yeah, um, I follow Arsenal Football Club. <laughs> uh, I, I suspect that brings you more happiness than following Aston Villa. <laughs> I don't know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's all relative. It's all relative. It's all relative. <laughs> it's all relative. <laughs> Um, and uh, I, I I go to see the, the I go to see matches, uh, and they can be really good times because when I go, I go with my children, mm. uh, the the two older ones, um, and and we have a good time together. Yeah. You know? uh, so that gives me a, a bit of a, a bit of balance. I do. Do you say a bit of balance there? Do you, do you want more? I mean, do you want more of the, I guess, the home life and less of the work life, or are you comfortable in your I, own skin there? I, I am comfortable because I can, I I I do what I what I want to do, mm. right? Um, if I if I want to uh go and see my daughter i just go and see her <laughs> uh and it's a saturday it's a long drive i go on saturday i come back on a sunday and we have good time together and and do you know what it doesn't mean i can't do any other things yeah you yeah. know i can because these days you know you've got that yeah got an ipad you know so you, you, you it doesn't stop you mm. from doing other things i think technology uh uh as long as it's not abused, uh, actually give us opportunity to find 
that balance more easily. Right, and now, it's about giving, that, giving that full attention through technology rather than having yeah. your attention completely scattered by yeah, technology. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so for me, it's, it's, that, it, it's the fact that I can uh, give myself to those other things that help me to find meaning and balance in, mm. in, in what I do. You know. So I don't feel stressed. So you feel quite sense. comfortable with where you're where you're at in terms of work-life balance. Do you feel happy? Yes, yes. I mean, I would, um, I would be unhappy if I got into a situation in which, uh, let's say, my job was not being productive. And for me, productive is is just I have a tunnel view about this, which just drives some of my colleagues mad at times. For me, productive is our young people getting through. Mm. They're getting through, we're productive. Yeah. If they're not getting through, we're not. So what we've got to do to, to make it better. Uh, as long as I, I can get that, I can feed my faith, uh, which is important to me. Uh, I have the time I give to my children when uh, I need to. Don't even need to when the when when it is right to is is probably even best because you know my my children are young people they're not that young any more they don't need me uh, as much as they used to uh, when they did they got my full attention when I mm. first came to work yep. for Centre Point one of the first things I said to Anthony is uh, don't hire me. Anthony was your your well, what was my boss predecessor as CEO yeah. and was your boss at the time. Yeah, yeah. don't hire me if you expect me to be here uh, <laughs> at nine o'clock because I can't do it. Mm. Uh, I can't do it. It's important to me uh, that I drive my children to school before I come here. Well, they needed yeah. me at the time. Yeah, you know. Uh, uh, so please don't put any meetings before ten. If you put it before then, I can't be there. And it was fine, mm. you know, with that. And we walked around it. Now, when they didn't, they don't need me for that anymore. They need me for other things. I'm there, you know. So, uh, so that gives me comfort um, uh, that they know that they can reach me anytime. I know that I can reach them anytime. They are, an, they are a big part of of my life. Um, I have a, a an eight year old now uh, means that I've got to be flexible about some things, mm. and I am. So um, I, you, I can't tell you how much I agonized today about uh, going to the film premiere this evening. That was a tough call for me uh, because it means that I'm going to miss her parents' evening. And I don't like mm. to do that yeah. at all. Um, uh, so I'm weighing my responsibility at work against my responsibility mm. to be at that parent's evening because it's important to her uh, 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 that I am. On this occasion, I can't do it. But in general, I never not go. You know, whatever else is is going on. And I guess to me that sounds like classic Shea agility, right? And just in terms of how you juggle and yeah. you know, move these things. 
Shea back in there, chief executive of Centerpoint. And I have to say, Shay, it's probably the, the first year, maybe in my entire lifetime, I don't know, that it is more pleasurable to follow Aston Villa than it is to follow Arsenal. So got to get that one in. There we go. So we're going to move on and talk to Katie Thistleton. Katie, if you think about jobs that when you were a teenager, you really wanted to do, Katie's probably done all of them. So she was in the broom cupboard as a as a kids TV presenter. She then became a Radio 1 DJ. She actually presents the charts on Radio 1 as well as the show Life Hacks, which we're going to talk about. And in recent times, she's been the face of BBC Bite Size Daily, which is the BBC's efforts to help parents with homeschooling through COVID-19. But we're going to talk about Life Hacks. So Life Hacks is a show on Radio 1. It's on Sunday afternoons. I've actually been on her podcast, Life Hacks, and then on the main show, uh, live on Radio 1 um, with Katie before. But we're going to talk about that show, about life hacks, and then we move on and uh, talk about some really interesting stuff around how she portrays herself on social media and just the honesty of social media. So let's begin this conversation where we're talking about her show on Radio 1, Life Hacks. As you know, you know, we, we just interview different people who um, have an interesting story to tell. So with you, we were talking about productivity and all the, all the great stuff that you do. Uh, but a lot of the time, in fact, the style of the podcast has changed slightly now. And um, it's mostly people who've kind of been through something quite difficult. So yeah. we recorded some last week and one was about trauma and one was about um, alcoholism. And so by the end of the day, of you know, we record like a batch of four of those you're just emotionally drained you know you're just a bit like whoa I've spoken about this and this and this and this and I'm 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 kind of a little bit it's like you've had four counseling sessions in a row yeah you feel a little bit um exhausted by it and that must be quite a different dynamic from being on radio one and talking about love island because obviously when you've got guests in there who've been through stuff that's really traumatic and you're talking about subject matters that are really sensitive like it's much more about listening than talking right definitely and we we do try and keep everything as, as light as we can and, and even with those really serious topics we end up having a little bit of a a little bit of a laugh but um our show is is you know a little bit like that it's a bit all over the place in that um we kind of start having a little chat and a laugh about something that's going on um and we play loads of music we still play as much music as a daytime show and then we will go on and do something you know a little bit more important in the middle so this week we talked about children's mental health week um you know we might talk about the environment we might talk about relationships um and then we do the chart for the last hour so it's a little bit like you're taking on a bit of an emotional roller coaster so it's kind of our job to to sort of guide people and transition people from one to the other without it seeming a little bit um drastic yeah and i guess because it's radio it's also what do you do for the people who are sort of tuning in in the middle of stuff as well exactly yeah I think you know there's there's definitely some research that most people listen to the radio for like 20 minutes max or something like that so and the likelihood is every 20 minutes you've kind of got a different a different turnover of people so they might not have been they might not be there for the whole the whole show yeah yeah I think it's only my boyfriend who listens like that he listens back (laughs) to the whole show (laughs) 
TV and radio's Katie Thistleton there. And I think there's something really interesting in that whole conversation about how we just see a bit more behind the scenes now. And yes, there is this kind of like Instagram facade, but also I think social media perhaps has also done some positive stuff. I don't necessarily always think of social media in a in a positive light, really, but it probably has done a lot of really positive stuff for just opening up conversations around mental health, as well as probably perpetuating a lot of bad stuff as well, has to be said. But there you go. Um, so we're going to continue on a similar theme, actually. So this is the founder of Yo Sushi. He's also one of the original Dragon's Den Dragons, and he is Simon Woodruff. And we're going to be talking in this little clip about his own success but also about times in his life where he's been a bit lost and depressed and just what he's learned along the way from all of those different experiences. This was a really interesting one to record. So Simon lives on a houseboat. I'm not going to say exactly where, but somewhere along uh, the River Thames in London. And it was a really weird experience kind of walking down these little jetties to Simon's very impressive and as you can imagine as the founder of Yosushi very well designed boat I mean it was just beautiful inside and you can totally see why he lives on a boat rather than living in a house it really kind of suited him and and just his whole demeanor and persona really but it was a really interesting experience because a lot of the other boats were just kind of, you know, normal little houseboats and stuff. And then you get to the end and um, his one was a little bit bigger than most of the others. But just uh, not what you'd perhaps expect from someone who made an awful lot of money um, through selling Yo Sushi. But I really enjoyed Simon's company. He had a lot to say. I, I remember when we sat down, there was this moment I got all these questions prepped and stuff. And um, I'd said in the email to him, um, can we have an hour? And he had just, he'd not quite answered that part of the email or maybe he just didn't read it or something. And then he, we sat down and he goes, how long do you need? And I was like, um, about an hour. And he goes, too long. Can we do it in 20? <laughs> I was like, okay. And then we spoke for about 20 minutes and then he said, no, I'm having fun. Let's carry on. So we did actually talk for quite a bit longer. But that was probably a very early... Uh, moment in my sort of podcast career if you like where there was just a real important lesson there about okay make sure you're really clear on how much time you've got and uh, you know make sure that's that's negotiated up front so that you can actually kind of prep it because had this absolute moment of terror but it all turned out fine in the end and as I say I really enjoyed talking to Simon so we talk at the beginning here about his thoughts on what you learn from and in particular not being able to learn from successes we're sort of brought up to think that uncomfortable feelings mm. in your body are not things you want to have so yeah, you quickly yeah, step yeah. back into being as comfortable as possible but actually unless you've got great anxiety about doing stuff I mean you learn how to manage that yeah. which you should do because you know what you're inner brain is telling you is look out for that that could Absolutely, go wrong yeah, that could go yeah. wrong and do you learn from great success not really you learn from you learn from failures or for things not working and one of the great lessons for me anyway is well one you know it's a glib way of saying it but one of the great lessons is that successful people even today being me 
you don't go around succeeding all the time. You know, successful people fail. Mm, and so if that's absolutely. what successful people do, you, you have to be willing to do it and dust yourself off and yeah. but still retain your self-esteem without sort of going, oh, God, I can't do anything at all that's going wrong, yeah. you know, which, you, you know, which isn't, isn't very good, really. But, you know, just dust yourself off, off and, and get up and do the next bit. Simon Woodruff there, the founder of Yosushi and one of the original dragons from Dragon's Den. So work can be all-encompassing for a few different reasons. And as we heard from Simon there and from Shay earlier on, it can be that you're really putting your heart and soul into, you know, striving for a cause or building a business. But also it can become all-encompassing when your heart and soul becomes your work. And we're going to hear from a couple of people now that blur that boundary between the personal and the professional by the fact that they're putting themselves out there. And a lot of what they're talking about or expressing in their work is intensely personal. And the first of these is Grace Petrie. Grace is one of my favourite singers. We met up at Comedia in Brighton, uh, the gig venue, and um, we were kind of uh, in the little backstage green room uh, upstairs before she was about to uh, go and perform that evening. Um, and if you don't know Grace's work, she is she's featured quite a lot on the Guilty Feminist podcast. She's often the, the sort of music that comes up at the end of the Guilty Feminist and um she's got some amazing i just think her lyricism is incredible um she's got some amazing songs one of the her songs was railing against the fact that a few years ago a lot of the the broadsheet newspapers were decrying the lack of of protest singers and you know so grace uh, as we recorded this a couple of years ago had only just turned 30 so she's quite young but a lot of the papers were kind of saying oh where's the new billy bragg where's the new generations um, protest singer voices and so she wrote this song i wish the guardian believed that i exist um, you also need to check out her song ivy which is just one of the most beautiful things i've ever heard and it's a song about her driving up the motorway to be at the birth of her niece really beautiful um, but we're going to talk um in this a little bit about her song black tie which was probably the sort of breakthrough thing that she's done. She's been very outspoken on gay rights and trans rights issues and has a huge following in the in the gay community. She identifies herself as a butch lesbian. And the song is about looking back at that kind of high school prom uh, kind of era of her life. And we've all been through that kind of high school um, era, who's going to be the prom king and the prom queen and all that kind of thing. It feels like we've kind of imported a lot of those um you know sort of aesthetics from american culture but anyway she talks in this song in in black tie um you know really about rejecting a lot of those gender norms those kind of uh, gender identity uh roles and so really she's saying i'm re i'm rejecting the uh the kind of you know male and female um dress code at these events and i'm going to wear a black tie um and she's got this lovely line in the song which says no you won't grow out of it you will find the clothes that fit and it's become a bit of an anthem for a lot of people. I just think it's, you know, really, even as a white heterosexual male, like I really just relate to the honesty of it and the, the quest for acceptance. And here I'm going to start by talking to Grace about criticism and about whether the uh, the kind of sense that you might get criticised or the, the sort of looming threat of criticism is ever something that is going to be a cause for writer's block. Yeah, not as so much as I used to. I think that it's it's again like just to talk about black tie. 
I think that is such a personal song, which is in some ways quite divisive. And there's no way I would have written that like five years ago, um, just because I would have been um, so. Con- I, I have been so concerned with being liked. You know, I would say that's been a big obstacle to to me. Um, I don't know, fulfilling my potential a lot of the time. Um, but I think I'm getting better about it, and I'm getting better at sort of um, trusting the audience as well. You know, I think I've done a lot of gigs with Robin Ince. And um, he, you know, whenever I would do shows with him, if I was supporting him or stuff, um, I would always feel the need to do something funny or sing something funny or be funny. And he, night after night, he would say to me, you don't have to do that. You're not here to do that, you know. And he meant it kindly, you know. He would say to me, like, you are funny, but, you you know, you should get out there and sing Iago. You should sing Baby Blue. Sing something, you know, as, as far from comedy as it could possibly be and trust that this audience full of people are open to hearing what you've got to offer and if it's and, and it, if it's good and it is you know he, he would say then um, then trust trust them you know to go with it um, and I think that's yeah that's the thing that it's a trick I think that another another thing that comes with age is just um, learning that don't put people in a box before you've sung to them or whatever yeah, you know like yeah, you can't sure. you can't tell who's going to like what and um, people don't need to be sort of absolutely spoon fed everything just because it's a comedy venue and it's a comedy show it doesn't mean that I can't go out there and do a really serious song or a really sad song or a really political song you know give people the choice Grace Petrie there talking about her song Black Tie and a lot else besides and um, one little story from when we recorded that so we recorded that at Comedia in Brighton and the idea was I would turn up and then she uh, would talk to me and then go and do a sound check and the people at Comedia just kind of came up to us and said hey Grace can you just do your sound check first and she's like oh Graham do you mind I was like yeah not at all so she started doing the sound check and we're in Comedia and then it just suddenly dawned on me right so she's she's starting to sing and 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 play and everything and it was like oh I'm now in an audience of one with someone who, whose work I really admire. Like, I'm a big fan of her stuff. And it was like, am I supposed to just be, like, too cool for school here? Or am I supposed to be really into it and, like, encouraging her? Or, like, I just don't even know what I'm supposed to do. So it just had this kind of, like, weird, awkward vibe to it. But then, yeah, when we sat down, um, yeah, Grace was great company. And, uh, yeah, really enjoyed that conversation. So we're going to move on and actually on a fairly similar theme, we're going to talk to another person who is very outspoken about their politics, um, Josie Long. So Josie is uh, well known on Radio 4. She's also a really critically acclaimed stand-up comedian and someone who I've been um, you know, really into for, for many, many years. Been to see a lot of her shows at Soho Theatre and various places like that. And um, we're going to talk about criticism. The start of this conversation was that um, just in the lead up to us talking, she had set up this uh, charity arts emergency, which was really a response to uh, all the sort of cuts in uh, funding for education and this kind of sense that it was really hard if you come from a poorer background to get into arts and humanities. So the idea of arts emergency is to create... Uh, the kind of old boys network that uh, everyone else has access to in the privileged schools 
in the state schools and so she's got all these you know artists and people who've uh, worked in all these different creative industries and stuff um, providing mentoring to young people in schools that don't have that kind of old boys network internship kind of way into these kind of things so she set up art, arts emergency and then also she had just uh, done this interview which had been picked up by one of these kind of right-wing uh, trolls and they'd taken one of the things that she said and put it in this video and it was all really nasty and so when we were talking about um the just the topic of criticism and and putting your work out into, into the world and putting your heart and soul out into the world that was sort of like the backdrop so i just thought that was quite a useful thing to explain because it's not in this clip but yeah i was asking her about her reaction to this video she said she hadn't seen it and then we just talk you know really generally about her relationship to criticism as uh, a young female stand-up comedian and how she's dealt with that over the years The first time this sort of sort of vague thing happened to me was when I did my first stand-up show. I won an award and I was so innocent and I loved it and I was like so thrilled. And then there was a particular comedy forum where people took pages and pages and pages to kind of say how awful I was. Most of them haven't right. seen me. And, and also like it became like sexualized and very physicalized and very like sometimes violent and threatening and they would go to shows of mine to record them, to slag them off and stuff like that. And it's this thing of... Like, at that time, yes, these people weren't speaking to me, but once I was made aware of it, it was really hard yeah. not to know it was going yeah. on. Um, then the, that some of those people moved to a different f site that was a specific kind of hate site that was set up so people could vent their hatred at things. Wow. And this wow. one couple of guys, a few of them, one of them is an estate agent in Sidcup, and that <laughs> life is your punishment. But... Um, they, this hate site was like very weird and was like reams and reams and reams but then it became very weird because they put sock puppet accounts of me saying like horrific things and really violent threats and sexualized threats and that lasted a few more years and eventually wow. that sort of stopped but those things did get in the way of things for me in a way because partly it was because my male colleagues in the main part didn't have to deal with that sort of mm. thing uh, and partly because it was kind of just before that kind of thing became uh, came into people's awareness so yeah. I sort of took it all on board and people would give very bad advice they'd be like don't let it get to you rise above it and it's like no this should be reported to police <laughs> then after that like on Twitter regularly I would get like you know occasion like abuse and stuff but then sometimes just people being obsessive sending me death threats I took that to the police and they were quite wow. shit about it and basically, this is a, that was all for being a comedian, not even being political. Yeah. That was for existing as a woman and being thrilled about it. That was literally it. It was for supporting a comedian that these people loved. Like, it was nonsense. But so, having had so that... On there, so, so, back to the risk thing. So, did you not, at the point of doing the first show that was overtly political, think this might increase the level of tension that I get online? or the, the I even, even just, I'm going to have to deal with more of that shit, rather, even if you don't... Necessarily Again, I don't think I anticipated it, which is dumb yeah. of me. But I think also it was the case that I was like, well, I've already been through all of this for nothing. <laughs> so now I'm saying an opinion, fuck it, at least I'm saying it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's like, a bit like that. I like that attitude. Yeah, I might as well. Yeah, like, I've already got it. I know what it's like to have these like threats and stuff. So it is really bad. But I think there's something going on that is about anger and it's about something to do with how men are being treated in society and what 
what's going on with them yeah. and the things that are happening as a result of it are like linked you know like online radicalization of young men whether it means that they then commit Islamic terrorism or whether it means they then abuse people online or whether it means that they then become ardent members of the far right like stuff's going on yeah for sure um, I'd also argue that one of the reasons why you might be more likely to be targeted than say other female comedians is that you are a voracious optimist ha huh. Like, you have this thing about optimism, right? So, like, your show titles are things like Trying is Good, Romance and Adventure, All of the Planet's Wonders. Like, it's, like it's yeah. just joy, joyously optimistic. Um, where do you get the optimism from? Um, I think it's just... Uh, it's funny, it's interesting, because, like, I was talking to my boyfriend before we moved in a little while ago, and I said, like, but I'm a very positive person. And he was like, well, you are, but, like, I think you've actually been quite beleaguered. And, like, mm. I think what I want is to bring the best of what I have on stage. And I really, really want my shows to be positive. And I feel like that's what, what I want my art to be. I want it to be about, like, me trying to be my best and about trying to find the best things and about, like, trying to kind of be positive and hopeful. And, and it's definitely who I am and what I believe about the world. But, like, I think if you spoke to my boyfriend, he'd be a bit more like, she's always grumpy. <laughs> she's, like, angry about this, that, the other. And I think it's, like, it's complicated. I, I, I tell you what's been amazing, though. It's so weird, like, the election and how well the Labour Party did and how well ideas that I truly believe in and values that I hold are now polling in our country has been the most incredible tonic for optimism. Mm. Like, I was really, really... My last show was called Something Better, and it was kind of about, like... Try, it was about this book called Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit which I really recommend she's amazing she's wise and she's so positive and so practical like she's like this is what people have done this is what you can do don't forget this that the other like so sort of like think this move on and, um, but it was partly because I felt so like the situation was so dire and, dire and difficult and um, then the election I just feel like I didn't realise the weight I was carrying in terms of trying to keep the flag flying and keep optimism going and then since the election, I've been like, yep, we all yeah. agree, everything's fine. And this weight is just lifted where I feel kind of so, like, supported and vindicated and stuff like that. Josie Long there. And as you can probably uh, guess from the end of that recording, uh, we were recording that little interview there not long after Jeremy Corbyn and Labour had done quite well in a general election. So it shows you how long ago that was. Uh, but there you go. So sometimes a podcast episode comes along that just kind of knocks you for six and um, often in a really unexpected way. And this is a really good example of that for me personally. So this is Jonathan McDonald. Jonathan is the author of a book called Powered by Change. He's a keynote speaker and a multiple entrepreneur. But he tells a couple of stories here where he's talking about toxic people. So when we think about how the boundaries between work and life become blurry, one of the things that can happen is when you get into difficult situations or toxic situations in your work, that can really impact on your family and the people around you. And that's exactly what we're going to hear in this clip. But it's basically Jonathan talking about his own experiences being surrounded by and, and actually attracting people who have a level of toxicity about them. So narcissists and psychopaths and people of that nature. 
And what was really interesting about this is, and you you kind of hear this a little bit in my reaction to it. I mean, the story is amazing. And a lot of the the little just nonchalant things that he drops in there, like, oh, um, we just happen to be living in a, in a car, in a pub car park and stuff, drops in these things that you're just like, whoa, you know, that, that's such a sort of powerful story. But you might also be able to hear in my voice a little bit as we're going through this clip, me actually sort of thinking out loud about stuff that's going on in my life. And um, I was, uh, at the time... Uh, let's just say involved with someone who was quite toxic and um, was was actually just recognizing that and really the penny was dropping for me um, really by listening to Jonathan's story because I think sometimes you know when you listen to someone else describing it it's easier to be objective and um, I definitely made some big changes as a result of um, this conversation with Jonathan just in my own life so uh, it really helped me I'm hoping that it might help you too in certain situations so this is Jonathan McDonald and we're talking about toxic people also read a blog where you talked about um debunking that phrase you know fail fast fail off fail often kind of thing and then you said actually it's about learning fast and learning often yeah so i'm interested if you are happy to share in a couple of those you know the the, the business disaster stories what you learned and um you know how how that shaped you because i think that's always yeah. it's, it's funny yeah it's funny when you said when you said uh um if you, you know, if you're happy to, I looked at the, the, uh, time. <laughs> <laughs> so, how many failures do you need? Um, let me pick, let me pick two of my spectacular disasters. I was going to say pick one, uh, but yeah, pick two. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> well, actually, yes, yeah, so let, let's, so I'll group them together because the learning's the same, funnily enough. This is the spookiest thing is that the, the learnings are so similar. I evidently didn't learn them the first time well enough. Mm. Um, but so, so the first time, uh, and you spot a pattern, you can see it in hindsight, it's retrospective 2020 vision, but picked, uh, found a business partner who, who gave me loads of adulation, thought I was an absolute genius, said he was honored to work with me. Um, you know, he would do everything in his power to, you know, to, to, to build something with me and, and 24 hours a day and all this kind of stuff. There's loads and loads and loads of adulation. Um, then, kind of sucked me into this um, system where I was doing all of the, basically putting all the money in, he was taking all the money out and, and all the while he was taking all of the, the, you know, the, the upside and the credit and everything. And I was essentially draining my entire resources mm. and, um, and eventually he just disappeared. Wow. And um, with all of my money and, and, and then um, uh, yeah, it was, it was a, an extraordinarily, vicious um suction mechanism of my entire life i ended up with 12 pounds 67 in the bank an extraordinarily angry wife <laughs> uh, two young children um living behind a pub in a car so that was 2004 wow. um uh, so 2017 2018 um i went through a not dissimilar process and um, I'm obviously for legal reasons, can't name names or anything else like that and can't say much more about, about it, but tremendously and savagely attacked by a total psychopath. 
and the uh, who then has de- defamed me widely across industries and um whilst in the background setting up secret um operations and it's just it's just incredible but wow. the uh, the 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 um the similarities between the two are really really shocking because the 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 pattern is relatively the same but the the outcome is i my weakest part of my life has been attracting and nurturing and loving toxic people. Mm. And and it comes from my childhood. I've given up at birth. These aren't excuses, by the way, but given up at birth, fostered a couple of times, eventually adopted, beaten to crap from the age of five till 16. I've had 30-something broken bones, um, stabbed through the hand on my first day at school. Uh, the last day of school, stabbed through the stomach. So I, I have... I have been around toxicity so much so that as soon as I finished school, I eventually started courting um, women who were toxic psychopaths or narcissists. And I found myself a magnet to people who are toxic. Mm. And I, and it's because the toxicity that really is, is my sweet spot is when they are um, narcissistically um, pleasant and fulfilling and build me up and build me up and build me up. And then even when they, chop me down i still feel tremendously relieved when they build me back up again yeah and i forget about the chopping and forget about the roller coaster of this entire savage attack because the feeling is so good to be accepted back in by the narcissist that you continually go through it now so i've been in psychotherapy for nine years to to look at these things and and, and i've now structured a, a kind of a a way of dealing with it. And it was only when I realized that my, my business partner um, in the second example was this, was this toxic person, this toxic narcissist. Um, and when I actually pulled the plug on that and said, I, I actually, this isn't going to work for me. They went absolutely ballistically insane. And that's because you can't hold a mirror up to these, these toxic mm. people. If you hold a mirror up to them, then they will smash through the mirror and then smash you. And that's what's happened all the way up till now. And, and, um, but Nonetheless, what I didn't do, which I did do in the past, was I, I didn't this time just keep going and keep going and keep going and hope it was going to be okay. This time I called it. And next time I'm surrounded by a toxic person, I cut immediately. I don't, I don't give any, any of my energy to toxicity anymore. And I've, I've now got a toxicity radar. Um, but yeah, that's my, my learning. Wow. That's <laughs> astonishing. And thank, thank you for the, just the honesty and, candidness of that i think a lot of people will really relate to that um i'm interested in the the radar because i mean you mentioned before that's the the sort of piece that you felt was your weakness and so obviously that's mm. something that you know like know, knowing you a little bit I, I i can well imagine that you're sat there thinking okay that's a weakness i need to work on that how do i get metrics around that how do i measure that all those kind of things <laughs> what was your yes What's the process yes. around that? And, and perhaps also for people listening to this who may feel like they're in similar situations, what, what can you pass on in terms of wisdom? Yes. Well, here's the, here's the, here's my uh, two by two. Gr- I've got a two by two grid for almost everything <laughs> in life. So, so, so um, firstly, the principle is that it's about energy management. That's the first thing to note, note that, that, around being able to be aware of who you're around whether they're narcissist sociopath or 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 psychopath the being being able to be aware of the energy 
that they give or take is the principal component. And I'll go into the two by two grid in a second, but it's all around the awareness of energy. And I mean, awareness of whether these people are radiators or vacuums, whether these people actually suck out or evaporate what is in you or whether or not they do the opposite. And I mean, consistent energy rather than ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs. So you can track it over time in terms of the energy that you feel. And funnily enough, instinctively, we actually can feel these things. And I mean this without sounding all esoteric. Um, If we're around bad energy, we can actually tell that that's bad energy. We just sometimes overthink it out so that we go, oh, it's fine. It's my work colleague. But inside, you already know that it's bad energy. Anyway, here comes the two by two Mm. grid. So on one axis, so let's say the vertical axis, we're going to say that's how much um, the experience or the person um, provides in terms of energy. So north at the, at the top of our axis would be hugely providing energy to us and an extreme warmth of feeling and, and togetherness and, and solidification of, of resonance, right? So that's the top. But at the bottom, zero, where it intersects with our, with our soon to be horizontal axis, um, zero is, is no energy. Um, or low energy or negative energy. You could even go past the zero into the minuses if you like. It's up to you. It's your axis. But I can't, I put zero as, as, as flat. So in other words, that there's nothing positive. It's only negative. <laughs> then in terms of the horizontal axis, the horizontal axis is how much effort it takes. So we've got vertical is energy it gives. Yeah. And horizontal is effort it takes. <laughs> and then, and then I put um, two lines inside my grid. So I've got I've got four boxes basically. I've got a box on the top left, box on the top right, box on the bottom left, box on the bottom right. And unsurprisingly, you can imagine. And by the way, I would recommend every listener plots everyone they spend the majority of their time with into each of these four boxes. Bottom left hand side is people that you know what it doesn't take very much effort. They don't give you very much energy. They don't really, they don't, they don't take very much from you. They don't give very much to you. They're not, you know, it's, it's just, it doesn't really, it, it doesn't really um, matter. Yeah. They're kind of meaningless. It's like maybe the postman that you see every single day doesn't really give you, you know, it's, it's fine. So that's okay. The bottom left-hand side, I, I put the word minimize. And I use the word minimize because actually it's not really, there's not much point in spending too much time. It's not giving you anything and it's not helping. And it's, you know, but then it's not really that much of a problem. Bottom right hand side, however, it takes you a lot of effort and actually the negative returns are strong. It's not actually providing you with a similar amount of energy as you're actually expending in the effort. So the bottom right hand side is what I would class as avoid. Okay. So you've got minimize on bottom left. You've got avoid on the bottom right. Top right hand side, we've got the it take it takes a lot of effort, but by goodness, do you get a lot of energy out of it? Mm. Or or you are surrounded by huge amount of energy, positive energy with that person, but you have to fly seventeen thousand miles to get there, or you have to <laughs> spend nine nine hours driving across England to arrive, or you have to spend six hundred and fifty quid to 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 get to that that environment with them. Whatever it is, that's a huge amount of energy, but a huge amount of effort. That, I put the word apply. And I'll tell you why I mean apply in a second. Because the top left-hand side is maximize, which is doesn't take very much effort, 
gives you huge amount of energy. Yeah. That is maximized, where you should maximize your time. And the reason apply is top right is that I've realized over time that if you apply yourself and practice and form methodologies and form hacks and form tools, then what's at the top right eventually moves across to the top left. Hmm. And that's what I found. And so if you apply new systems, top right becomes top left. And if you actually minimize bottom left, eventually stuff doesn't really even exist there. And now what I do is I delete, I delete any interaction with people on the bottom right-hand side immediately. Yeah. Block, yeah. delete, yeah. avoid. And so my grid significantly lives north of the uh, the middle line now. I'm now I'm now in the I'm applying. I'm I'm hacking my life to apply as much as I can to things and people and objects and resources and experiences that give me huge amounts of energy and I can give them huge energy. I've just drawn that grid out and I think I'm going to spend <laughs> quite a lot of time like during the rest of the day really thinking about that. That's uh, that's incredible. <laughs> That was the brilliant Jonathan McDonald. So this next episode was originally released in April 2020, middle of lockdown for coronavirus and lots of attention turning to how do we lead, how do we manage through crisis times? And who better to talk to about that than this next guest? So this is Luai Al-Romani. He was the head of finance and planning at one of the largest banks in Syria, when the war broke out there in 2011. And he's written this book called Lessons from a War Zone, How to Be a Resilient Leader in Times of Crisis. It's just a phenomenal read. Like there's all these little stories in there about the various things that he had to do, the various decisions that he had to take, all of the things that were happening around him, you know, where he would, they would know that the war was happening like two blocks away from uh, the building that they were in and stuff like that. Really just remarkable stories. And we're going to talk about one of those um, stories right now. So um, what, we refer, what we're referring to here is, at the beginning, an act of kindness where uh, the bank started to lay on special buses for their staff so that their staff could uh, get safely in, in and out of work. And it had this kind of knock-on effect. This act of kindness had this knock-on effect where all the other banks um, started to want to do the same thing. And they were helping all the employees of other banks uh, and it became this kind of what goes around comes around, uh, you know, kind of gesture. So, yeah, you think of the other banks as your competitors. But in a situation like this, actually, by you helping out the staff from other banks, too, then, you know, it really lays down a marker of how you can cooperate and succeed in a really tough environment. So we talk about that here and then we move on to talk about some of the actions that he took and then the reactions to um, the work that he was doing uh, by the people of Syria. So just, I mean, just a phenomenal story. Um, I was just really bowled over by so many of the, the little details that he was sharing. But let's get into it. Here is me talking about this idea of, of uh, bussing his own workers and the workers of other banks um, in and out of work and making sure that they were safe. Um, so here we are talking to Luai Al-Romani. And there's uh, actually a video on uh, YouTube uh, where where you can see these uh, jihadist uh, groups uh, actually demolishing uh, the bank uh, and all the surrounding uh, buildings. So, 
So what uh, we did in uh, Damascus, we actually called up our uh, customers, and to their pleasant surprise, we we told them that their safe, that their valuables were uh, were actually saved uh, and that they can be picked up from Damascus. And you know, I mean, these uh, people, the, I mean, the 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 locals of uh, 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 Derizor, many 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 of them are of Bedouin Arab uh, the heritage, and so uh, the people of the uh, Derizor, there they uh, uh, many of them come uh, from a, from uh, from a Bedouin Arab heritage, and mm. uh, what these uh, Bedouin uh, Arabs have been renowned for for the past two thousand years is poems. So, so I mean, 2,000 uh, years ago, if they were happy with someone, they would really gift them with like a poem. Uh, and even now, this gifting of, of poem is a very strong part of their tradition. So, so we were gifted by poems, Bedouin Arab poems, uh, and we uh, uh, framed them across the uh, corridors, you know, of our bank. So, so people like you know, I mean, generally don't like banks, let let, uh, let alone in a crisis. But yeah. you know, doing these smaller things, which which really to us were, I mean, the right things to do, you know, allowed us to to maybe like uh, maybe uh, this was the best metric, you know, out of uh, you know you know out of uh, all of the other uh, banking uh, profitability and return on equity metrics, just how many. Poems did we get from the the part of Syria? Yeah, and I love this one um, uh, that that's in the book. Yeah, I'll, I'll just read it out. Um, so it says, "As the dark night dawned on us, the wolf's fangs emerged. We conceded the loss of our money, blessings, and belongings. We prayed to God for a loving helping hand, and we were saved by the chivalrous heroes of Bank Bumo." Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I mean, that is one of those things that uh, yeah. I'm sure will I'm sure will stay with you forever. But it's just very powerful yeah, to yeah, it is. And, uh, um, to read. Yeah, yeah, it is a and the way it's like and uh, maybe if you, I mean, you know, if uh, if someone was able to read it in Arabic, uh, it's even much more uh, powerful because it really like resonates with this, you know, Arab Bedouin tradition of poetry. Mm. Yeah, and there's a like a very strong rhythm to it. So yeah, would wow. it be would it be okay if I read it in Arabic now? Sure, yeah, I'd love to hear it. خيام الليل والذيب النابة قلنا ضاع الحلال والمال ونعيمة قصدنا رب السماء يسخر لنا حبابة جانا الفرج من نشامة بنك بيمو. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I'll yeah you could just feel the rhythm to it, right? Put it or not, yeah. <laughs> Luai Al-Ramani there and his book Lessons from a War Zone, which I'd love you to go and check out. So this is the final clip of this episode and talking about work-life balance. This was a really interesting and for me a very important one. This is Tamika Isaac Devine. We recorded this in July 2020 and released it in August 2020 in the height of the conversation around Black Lives Matter. So Tamika is from South Carolina in the US. And at the age of 29, back in 2002, she became the first African-American woman to serve on their city council. Um, she's been their mayor. 
and she has been a counsellor basically ever since. She also does that work and juggles that work alongside a full-time job as an attorney in a law firm and she's also quite present and outspoken and uh, visible on social media, both in um, in terms of her politics and also in terms of um, the work that she does with her husband around uh, guiding people around work-life balance. So she just felt like such a perfect person to have in this episode. But also, I think there's a bigger uh, purpose for me sharing this clip here and, and making this the final clip of the episode. So she has led her city through some really turbulent times. Obviously, Black Lives Matter. Also, the removal of the Confederate flag, which was a big issue there. And also some really dramatic weather events that she's going to talk about. And then, of course, there was the church shooting that made international headlines. So just all of these traumatic, big, um, often, you know, really hideous events. And she has the responsibility she's charged with that responsibility of representing her city representing her people and showing leadership in times that are really tough for her personally as well as for obviously all the people around her and so I think here's the bigger point which is that a lot of the conversations around work-life balance become very different when you have such a strong sense of purpose and when you really know what you're trying to achieve and, you know, you really have a sense that you're of service to other people, then you don't mind putting in the extra hours. You don't mind that work uh, necessarily sometimes bleeding into your personal life too. So I think, you know, that's a really nice note to end this Beyond Busy 100 uh, part two on. And so let's, without any further discussion, just hand you over to... Uh, the wonderful, the inspiring Tamika Isaac Devine. Looking back on my my time, you know, especially within the last ten years, we we've had several things. Um, so our city actually uh, was also hit by I call it a thousand year flood, but it was a, a major flood event that you know, only happens every thousand years. And, and, and we lost um, several residents um, died during that flood. Um, this is like 2015, right? Yes, 2015. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was a lot of, you know, schools were closed, of course. Um, uh, a lot of infrastructure was damaged, roads and bridges and um, just having to deal with that and, and how do we make sure that we're keeping our citizens safe as well as being able to protect the assets of the city, the infrastructure and things. So that was one. And then, yes, um, when the Confederate flag came down uh, shortly after the Charleston church shooting. Um, you know, we had uh, demonstrations and protests at that time and, you know, the removal of the flag. And we were, you know, of course, on the national stage then, and then the, the Charleston church shooting is very personal because uh, I knew um, Senator Clemente Pinckney, who was uh, one of the nine who were killed, um, the pastor of the church. Um, and for me, it's also very unique because the shooter actually uh, grew up in our community. Uh, his uh, grandparents um, and parent and father lived in my neighborhood. Wow. And so I know members of his family. And so, you know, our community also dealt with you know, the feeling that, you know, we had 
a state leader and others gunned down in such a heinous fashion, you know, in, at the end of a Bible study, but also how pretty much in you know, the shooter was homegrown in our community and, you know, what, what creates that kind of anger and malice that you would take someone's life typically, you know, basically just because of, of the color of their skin. Um, and so our community uh, dealt with that as well. And so leading through those times, it, it, it is interesting because, you know, you, you find yourself as an elected official, a lot of people think, okay, they're solely about policy. They um, enact policy, they enact laws, and then they make sure they get implemented. It's really not that easy because when you're dealing with trying to affect policy that makes the lives of the citizens that you serve better, you got to deal with the social issues as well. You got to deal with the feelings as well. Um, and and what we're talk- dealing with now, you know, what created those systems of oppression and racism and hatred um, to the point where what can we do to try and uh, react to those, dismantle those. And so, you know, as a leader, um, I found myself, number one, just really identifying uh, with the pain that the citizens I represent dealt with through all those instances um, and then feeling like, you know, and then showing the leadership on, okay, this is what we can do to move forward as a community. This is what we can do to make things better. And so whether it was, you know, making sure that, you know, as the flag came down, freedom of speech was protected and folks who believed it needed to stay up, um, you know, were be able to protest peacefully. But then at the end of the day, the flag came down with, you know, no violence, no issues. You know, that was part of it. And then the conversations that we as a community had to have after that as far as, you know, what, um, you know, what made Dylan Roof, you know, the white supremacy was, you know, young, you know, most people don't think about it. Like you, you mentioned, even from what my father dealt with, it's a, it was a generation ago, but a generation seems long enough to the point where you would think that, you know, kids were, were growing, were raising kids in such a diverse society now. You know, I find the young people that I represent a lot more open to, you know, interracial relationships, uh, you know, uh, gay relationships, making sure we're taking care of the environment. I mean, the young people are so uh, open in their thinking. And so to meet and hear of a young person who is, um, who has uh, racist views and especially, like I mentioned, I know his family and I don't, that's not what he was taught and raised. So to figure out where does that person get those views and how do those things get supported. So our community had to have some real tough conversations about, uh, you know, what, what was going on and, and, and how do we make sure that we are having those racial, racial reconciliation conversations and, uh, you know, addressing people's pain, but also figuring out how do we um, create a, an environment where uh, tolerance and racial diversity and inclusion are the norm versus, um, you know, in some areas where it really probably was more of the exception. Yeah. Um, when in that, in the process of that, would you address your own pain? So obviously you knew the family of the shooter, you knew um, one of the victims really well. There's obviously shock, there's grief, there's all kinds of things running through your head at that point. 
is it a case of putting all that to one side to do the job or is it a case of trying to to channel those emotions into the job like wh- what was your sort of did you have a kind of strategy about how to manage yourself through that and how to how to how to make it okay for you personally wow that's a great question um I don't know if I intentionally had a strategy. <laughs> it was just kind of probably more uh, gut instinct. But looking back, how I managed that really was, um, you know, the, of course, the, the the day of and you know the days following uh, were more uh, talking with my husband and my my close friends about you know processing you know the loss of our friend as well as um, the uh, acknowledging. That you know, I as an elected official and as a neighbor represented uh, the family of of Mr. Roof, and so I, re- I actually remember the day after of the shooting, going down to uh, uh, Dylan's grandparents' house, who you know lived very close to me, and knocking on their door, and they were like, "Go away, go away," and it was because I was like, "Hi, it's Tamika," and they opened the door, and they were both just sobbing, and. Um, I gave them both a hug and they were like, I'm sorry, you know, we've been being harassed all day and and by the media and other folks. And so they, you know, that's why they had that initial reaction of go away. Um, But, you know, I ended up giving them a hug and um, talking with them about, you know, the pain that they were feeling. And um, it was just so initially my thought was more instinctively, it was more, how do I help, you know, I process my thoughts and pains through helping other people process theirs, being honest with, you know, what it meant to me, but also, you know, being a leader and, and showing that, you know, I respected, you know, these folks and as my constituents, but also as, as neighbors. And so over the course of those conversations, um, I think how I probably dealt with it was being, you know, yes, I'm a city leader, but I'm also a wife and a mom and a community leader. And so I'm going to uh, deal with my pain the way I'm telling you to deal with it by being honest with it and confronting it and, and, and talking about solutions. And I think that's really my personality. I'm more action oriented. So even like what we're going through now in our country, I've been talking to folks about, okay, but what's the action? Let's yeah, deal with yeah. what our feelings are, but what's our next steps? What's our action? And I think that, that has been the way I process it. Um, and it's been good for me, but it's also, also I think, been good for um, the, the leadership in me that I see um, how it's evolved, that I've become more of intuitive about the action that we need to take next instead of just dwelling on where we are right now. So there you go, Tamika Isaac-Divine, and that brings to an end part two, our work-life balance part of Beyond Busy 100. I hope you enjoyed those. I'm really proud of some of those episodes. And if there's any that particularly piqued your interest, um, rest assured that we're taking like four or five minute clips out of hour-long conversations. So go and check out some of those episodes in full. You can find all of the previous episodes over at getbeyondbusy.com along with the show notes from this episode and a lot more info. So if you want to check out anything more to do with the podcast, just go to getbeyondbusy.com. Please make sure you've hit subscribe. That really helps us. And also leave a review if you 
uh, can possibly do that on iTunes or on your podcast app of choice. That would be amazing. Um, also, just want to say a quick thank you to Riz and Emily for all of your help with the podcast and particularly with putting these um, episodes together. And of course, to uh, my long time editor for the podcast. And I was looking through it um, earlier, actually. I always used to say, uh, Mark Stebman from Bloomsbury Digital and then I was really happy when he changed the name to Podium because I could never say Bloomsbury Digital so if you go back and listen to like any of the early podcasts you'll just hear me really stumbling over the word Bloomsbury and trying to trying to force it out of my mouth um, so thanks to Riz and to Emily and to Mark um, this episode uh, as always is sponsored by Think Productive so if you want to bring in a company to help your team's productivity then just go to thinkproductive.com we can help you do that um, finally i am doing this weekly email called rev up for the week the idea is to put a positive or productive idea in your inbox every sunday night ready for the week ahead so if you want to sign up for that just go to grahamalcott.com and there's a form basically on every page there's a form on the home page there as well and uh, all you need, need to do is just put your email address in and sign up. And then every Sunday, I'll send you that email. And it's also really just a good way of keeping in touch with all the other things that I'm doing as well. So sign up for my Rev Up for the Week email. And we'll be back in a couple of days' time with part three, the final part of Beyond Busy 100. It just feels like such a big milestone. I wanted to celebrate it right. I wanted to do it right. So we've ended up with a three-part episodes and uh we're making it epic we're going for it but i'm really enjoying this retrospective and um i yeah I've, I've spent far longer than i expected just kind of geekily going back through bits of episodes and stuff that i loved as well so um it's been a really nice process for me i have to say i don't look back often enough that's just a thing and i know it's a thing and in the next uh part in part three we're going to be looking at happiness and success and i think one of the things around judging success and being happy is reflecting on things that you're proud of. And I just have to say, I'm really proud of so many of these conversations and just want to say thank you to everybody who's um, listened to these episodes over the years and uh, given me feedback that's kept me going with it as well. Um, Cause that's really important and um, has just really helped me to do work that I'm, I'm really pleased with and really, really proud to share. So uh, thank you for being part of this in uh, whatever form. Uh, please do support the podcast any way you can by subscribing and liking and everything else. And I'll see you in a couple of days' time for part three. So Beyond Busy 100, episode two, over and out. Take care. Bye for now. Bye.